Hey everybody, it's Jeff. Before we start the episode today, I wanted to let you know about two things. First, our team is expanding. We are always looking for great folks who have incredible skill. So if you are highly talented and are looking for maybe a new opportunity and don't mind the idea of living in Knoxville, Tennessee, MXU might be the place for you. So go to getmxu.com slash careers and find out what's available. Also, number two, it's not too late to join us in the MXU 75-Day Health Challenge. Some of you may have thought that you couldn't sign up after February 1st, but we're just getting started. We're only about six days in, and we would love to have you jump on board. It's an easy on-ramp to get to better health, better fitness, a better you, and you're partnering with 1,500 or so other people who are on the same journey. So we can't wait to hear from you. Go to getmxu.com slash mxu75 and sign up today. Now let's get to the podcast. You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 101 of the MXU podcast. I'm Jeff Sandstrom, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lee Fields and Jay Desai, and we are thrilled today to be joined by Matt Larson, who is, I just want to refer to you as Grand Poobah, but I think your official title is Executive Vice President. Yeah, Vice President, Vice President of Pro Vice, Audio Sales. Vice President of Pro Audio Sales for Group One Limited, which is basically all the cool consoles. So, yeah, except Yamaha, but... um yeah, so we're we're glad to have you, Matt. Thanks for making time for us today. You guys know what Matt is not? Matt is not the commander of the damn space station. Well, well ha- have you seen true. an SD7 Quantum? It's pretty damn close. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty close. Hey, I will tell you this, Matt. I don't know if, did we, if we've ever talked about this. I was mixing Katie Herzig, mm-hmm. and we were at Summerfest. And yes. the console was the first whatever i don't know what console it was his first time i'd been in america it had just come over or something and you, i walked up and i'm with the opening band we're opening for david wilcox maybe one of the, i don't know david gray i don't know who these people are anyways i had no clue how to use this digico and i think matt was there and ryan was there and literally it felt like a spaceship because if you never walked up to a digico it's got way more colors than i was used to yeah that must have been the sd12 a couple years ago no, 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 no. It was something weird. I don't know. No, Jay knows. Weird. He knows more about this than you, Matt. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the 12. <laughs> I know it wasn't the 12 because it was before we had Digico's at the church. Ah, uh, maybe an SD5. Was it what uh, stage? Was it a big stage? Yeah, the one next to the water. Yeah, then that was the SD5. Yeah, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, it's, pre- it's pretty. It was. Yeah, my mix wasn't, but it was. <laughs> okay, That's so funny. let's. I, You've got so many great stories, Matt, to talk about about your your background, and I want to do that. But let's set the record straight here. Clear up for everyone. Everybody thinks you work for Digico. It's Group One is the American distributor for lots of audio products, including Digico and now Solid State Logic SSL. So how does all that work? Yeah, let me explain that. But first of all, I do want to say thank you for having me here. Um, this last year with MXU, we had such a great time with you guys. Uh, just the amount of effort you guys put in to put these events on is phenomenal. And I got to tell you, seeing everybody's faces or just seeing stuff online is, it's just terrific to see the amount of time you guys each put into it. Um, we're really looking forward to this upcoming year with your, the partnership with you guys. And just before we started, I just wanted to say thank you. 
Awesome. And that's from well, our welcome. Us. Matt Larson, the first person to thank us for anything. <laughs> wow, this, this feels like I'm a, I have my own church, and the guest pastor is giving props to the uh, to the host pa- or to the home pastor. That's funny. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, man. Oh, absolutely. So let's just talk about the big picture. So James Gordon, who was our managing director from Digico from day one, basically, um, he was asked by some venture capital guys if they would help him look at a couple companies that they were looking to um, invest in. One of them was Calrec. The other one was um, Ellen Heath. Well, they came back to James and asked him if he would be willing to start an additional company uh, to be the umbrella parent company um, because they were going to go ahead and do this investment. So what we call it is Audiotonics. And under Audiotonics, you have Calrec, Digico, and then Allen and Heath. Um, Group Unlimited is the U.S. distributor, and we've always been an independent distributor. Over time, we then bought um, Solid State Logic uh, in, in addition they decided to buy Group Unlimited because you want to have, you know, when you get the biggest distributor for your brands, you want to have skin in the game. So now they own us. So we're all under that umbrella. Uh, in addition, we were independent distributor for Clang. We then bought Clang. Um, about six months ago, we bought Sound Devices. Um, we still, uh, the Alan Heath stuff is distributed by a different uh, dis- independent distribution company, but yeah. it's still under the Audiotonics umbrella. Um, we also have independent products that we still Carry, uh, we do uh, Avo lights, we own Electro lights, um, Austria Audio, we also are a distributor of. So we try to add that independence because that allows us to actually go find new products that we think are worthy for the US, kind of build up that market. And there's times it makes sense for us to actually buy that company, other times it might be just a good partnership to actually distribute those fine products. So we try to really focus on just great audio products. We're really very fortunate, actually. That's incredible. So basically, at the end of the day, you guys are just taking over the world, and that's cool. That's what I heard. <laughs> One fader at a time, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's funny. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. We want to talk to you about what it's like in today's world being a manufacturer. We'll talk about supply chain stuff. We'll talk about competition and all those things. But first, I want to go back into your history a little bit and just get some of your story because people are going to be fascinated, especially from the Paisley Park years and being in Minneapolis around the rise and growth of prints and all that stuff. I just, I would love to just sort of hear some about your background and maybe a couple of stories and that that's a good way to kick us off. All right. Well, I think the thing that's interesting is every one of us in this industry actually has a story of how we got into the industry. Something happened. Um, I'm from a pretty large family. We have uh, 14 kids, and my oldest brother had a band. Wait a second. Wait a second. (laughs) Pretty large, you say? (laughs) Pretty large. How do 14 kids? I mean, it's a story of my. We had nine kids, and my dad died when I was young. My mom remarried a guy with five kids. Big Catholic family. This is the Brady Bunch, right? No no TV in your house. Huh? (laughs) No TV in your house. Uh, Yeah, we had to use a fork to change the channel. (laughs) <laughs> so, so anyway, that's another story. So anyway, my, the brother right over, older than me, he also had a band and because we had the big family, we also had the big house. So all the bands rehearsed and played at our house. Um, so when I was young, like probably fifth, sixth grade, you know, I grew up with, with music and would always, you know, go down to my brother's other brother's bedroom to play his record player with his great stereo system. This is back in the like early, early, early seventies. Um, so anyway, 
my working with my brother through junior high, uh, he was in a band we were playing in Minneapolis has just had phenomenal music scene back in the seventies, eighties. And so we'd be doing the high school stuff and just keep going on. And, um, my brother left the band, but I kept going with this band. It was a huge band, um, size wise, you know, double drummers, great guitar player, horn section, everything in junior high school. Uh, they were all in high school, of course. I was a young one. And I just kept doing it, got into lighting, got into, you know, school lighting programs, you know, became the stage manager there. Uh, Minneapolis has some great sound companies um, that we kind of learned everything, you know, how to fix things, how to build racks. And back in the days, we had to build everything. We could never, you couldn't order any metal panels. We had to build the metal panels. We had to paint everything. We had to engrave everything after trucks were stolen. <laughs> we learned that we have to engrave everything. Um, so it was really good to learn. And it was one of those things I always I always tell my kids, uh, John Thomas and Peter, it's like, you don't have to be the smartest in the room. You just have to work harder than everybody else. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that we don't know, but go figure it out. You know, And the, the great thing we have is with YouTube, we can learn a lot from other people that have experienced it. And so anyway, that was kind of my build up through high school. I worked for a lot of bands. We had a um, band that won star search limited warranty. That's kind of like the American idol of the day. And that's uh, awesome. Ed McMahon. Yep. Yep. So limited warranty was a big pop band in the day. And then uh, just went to school for electronics as I was still working for the couple sound companies and various bands in town. Uh, worked for a couple of hippies, the good guys in uh, St. Paul that did all the keyboard repair you know, guitar amp repair and stuff. So that was really good for getting my chops in on the electronic repair side and uh, customizing stuff, you know, modifying. I think the first console I modified was a Midas Pro 2 in a Soundcraft. I think it was a 400B because it didn't have enough buses. So we had to modify it to get more mixes out of it. Um, <laughs> wow. So how does that work? You just sort of lift the hood and go, okay, let's just rewire this whole thing. Well, it was just a matter of adding additional pots and it was really trying to figure out what we could do. There was some extra metal work that we were able to get things into. And, you know, we, we were scrappy kids back in the day. We had to figure out to get what we could and what we needed. Um, so, yeah, so it was great learning experience. Um, That's awesome. Not everything sounds so easy. It sucks too. Cause now kids just have to uh, buy a license key to upgrade their <laughs> outputs. <laughs> That's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, then I, I, I kept working um, for the regional sound companies. Um, Jesse Johnson from the time had a band. Uh, started working with him. Um, had a you know you always work with one person who's special who didn't I didn't really love working with him. He was kind of horrible. And another friend that I had worked with uh, doing a bunch of like festivals in the region was uh, one of the carpenters for Prince uh, going out on the Purple Rain tour, and he wanted to get me in. So I tried. I okay guys this so my resume i did it on purple paper you know had to use my mom's <laughs> ibm select typewriter to type the resume went and printed it on purple paper put it in a really nice envelope brought it out to the old rehearsal place um in Dean prairie uh to the manager ellen Leeds, a terrific man anyway uh this was just as purple rain was getting ready they were prepping for the actual tour and luckily i didn't get it because I was like 18 at the time, you know, so I was still a little too young. Was this like 82, 83? Uh, this would have been, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I was still in, just out of high school, went to school for electronics and I just, I needed actually really, honestly, I needed a little bit more time getting my chops up. Right. So they toured Purple Rain, but I kept pursuing, I spent a year trying to get that job because I wanted the job. Uh, I was scared. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I kept pushing and kept pushing 
And finally I got the call and they were looking, you know, the purple rain blew up. They had so many backline guys, but they also had like six technical people out on tour, just fixing stuff, you know, customizing stuff. And luckily, um, I was able to come in after purple rain shut down and they were just it filmed, uh, under the cherry moon movie. And I got the job. Susan Rogers was the uh, studio tech. So, um, basically we had our rehearsal place out in, um, off of Washington Avenue in Eden Prairie. And, uh, basically they already had a gig. So they flew somewhere. I started, I had the whole warehouse to myself in the shop and I just spent the week just cleaning the whole place up and organizing and going through things and just finding stuff. Um, and wow. then with, within a year was promoted to crew chief, um, because I could customize, build things like his Lynn drum machine. We would in the studio, we would actually have specific tunings for the toms and, Lindrum, the Lindrum was a fantastic piece, but it didn't have all the technology we have nowadays. So we had multiple tunings that we used in the studio. Well, you have to replicate that touring. So what I did is I modified that to have different tunings that the drum tech could actually switch physically to different tunings of basically different wow. pods. Um, and the other nice thing is, is he had the, I was going to say he had the budget. There was no budget. It was critical that everything always worked. So I, I was with them for just under seven years and it allowed me to actually basically everything we had, we had backup redundancy of everything. So all the racks and everything, I would do the design with R&R cases out of Chicago. But if there was a, a drum machine, there was a spare drum machine. If there's a keyboard MIDI switcher, I basically had everything like the MIDI switcher had a lot of ins, a lot of outs. Well, I built, got these really big industrial uh, relay units so I could, if we had a problem with it, I flipped one little switch and it would take everything from the main unit to the backup, you could do it right in the middle of a guitar solo or keyboard solo. You wouldn't even know the difference. Um, wow. But we had to just build all that. We didn't have the luxury. Um, so it's pretty interesting. Then, you know, this within a pretty quick time, you know, he, we seemed to get along and I was in the studio a lot. So we would rehearse all day with the band and crew. And then a lot of times it'd be just me and him, maybe with a, another engineer would go in the studio and record throughout the whole night. Um, probably get home about 10 30 the next morning. And just as you're pulling in, you'd get the page to go back to fix something, go in and fix something. And then maybe we'd blow off rehearsals that day and he'd go, we'd go back in at six at night and he'd go club or something and meet us up at about 10 30 or maybe one in the morning and go at it again. And then back in the studio. So it was, a, it was probably the best job, second best job I've ever had in my life actually. And you loved every second of it probably. It was really fun. And you had a pager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't forget That's the IBM amazing. select tech, uh, the typewriter. Absolutely. <laughs> I had That's a, incredible. I had, a, I had a pager in high school. It was for other reasons. <laughs> I remember you telling me a story similar. It, it was the, you know, work all day in the studio with the band. Everyone leaves and it's you and Prince and maybe another engineer and doing drums again till 7 a.m. And he's staying the whole time. Well, and here's what's what's interesting that when you look at an artist like Prince, I think the one thing that he got is he understood the artistry. He understood the music. He understood the writing. And he would come in, bang out the drums, grab the bass, go into the keyboards. And then, you know, pretty soon, you know, a lot of times, like say one o'clock, he'd have some keyboard textures and stuff. At one o'clock, we would just leave him alone in the studio and then get a page about 530 in the morning that uh, to come back in and finish stuff up, or he just wanted to share the, the, the choir of his voice, you know? Um, 
One thing I think that he also is really smart about is he didn't beat the crap out of the technology in the, in the sense of he would not sit there and work on the kick drum for two days trying to get that kick tone exactly the way he wanted it. He was on musically to the next song. Mm. Um, so there was the roughness, everything, everything we did. I don't, it's really weird when you look back at the live show, the recording studio, the rehearsals, to me, it all, it was a big blur. It was the same. It was live. Let's go print to tape, mix it down, move on to the next project. And that's why he had so many recorded songs, you know, it's. But it's just his genius just had to get out. It was like whatever was in his brain, he just wanted to get it on tape. Yeah. And. Just ultimate creativity, man. Yeah, and he would do things that I just never even understood what the heck he was talking about. One time he he came in and he wanted me to take a, we had these, um, what are they called? The syndromes, I think is what it was. It had a little four-inch speaker in, maybe a six, eight-inch drum, and that speaker actually had a trigger. He wanted to shoot it backwards, so we basically would mic the speaker, and just we would just do weird things in the studio, just try stuff out. Yeah. and. Some of the uh, end results were pretty amazing. Sometimes things didn't work, and we just next. Oh, that's incredible. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing also that I I'm very very grateful of, and this is, and I'm sure every one of you guys can appreciate this. The thing that I got out of it after all these years of touring with with Prince, and I did a couple of years with MC Hammers, just how big the industry is, and being able to tour all over the world as a young kid. You know, I was basically 19 and a half touring around the world. The thing that's so cool, even to this day, I could run into a friend I haven't seen in 30 years and give him the biggest hug. And it's like, we are, you're tied at the hip, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter how much time went by. And, and it's the same every day we meet people just as customers or whatever. It's a great bonding. And this is our little gem secret in our industry that nobody can appreciate. I would say military could, could understand, but, but I got to tell you, we're very fortunate. And one thing I've realized that for the most part, everybody in our industry, whether you're a volunteer at a church or you're working at the local theater, a lot of them aren't even getting paid or they're getting paid, bat- they're not even getting their battle pay, but yeah. they're so passionate about what they do. And and that's why I think I'm just very blessed to be a part of this industry. That's incredible, man. That's such a good word. So how do you get from there into the manufacturing world? Oh, that was interesting. So I did a couple of years with uh, MC Hammer. And then a friend of mine, this is a really cool story. There was a little a music store here. There's two of them, Newt Capay, uh, where we got all our drums and we had the guitars and stuff made. But there's another a store called Torps, and they were in St. Paul. And one of the guys, Jeff Walter, was the he basically worked there, and I've known him for probably seven years. And when I was with Prince, we had to buy a lot of stuff. So he was my go-to. I could make a phone call and order anything and it would just show up you know if, if he had it at the, the store he'd actually jump in his car and bring it out to the, our rehearsal place or then paisley park studios and what's interesting that's what became tour supply no way so, yeah so this was uh jeff he had actually um kind of just helped me on getting things i needed and uh what was interesting this is a great story so we'd be touring over in europe and i could call him you know we had to call we couldn't fax or email anybody and I'm like, you know what? I think I need some Mountain Dew. So he'd be he'd FedEx a case of Mountain Dew over to Germany or whatever. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're already shipping like batteries or gaff tape or whatever. So we had a special case for our Mountain Dew and we just need a little bit of, you know, US and a, something to drink, right? Yeah. 
That's amazing. So anyway, Jeff uh, had left that company and then Larry Martin um, had uh, kind of taken it over. And the music store, you know, the music industry was really changing for the small little Ma music stores. And the tour supply became the biggest part of it. It's called Tor- Torp's Tour Supply. And then uh, Larry and Lance actually then, um, whatever, however they did it, they basically split from Torps and then that became Tour Supply. And then they had offices in St. Paul, LA, as well as Nashville. So that's, anyway, back to where I got into manufacturing is Jeff Walter then left to go work for Anvil Cases of all places, right? They were kind of one of the started cases for the touring industry back in the 60s, 70s. And they were looking for somebody to kind of help, you know, as they got so big, they kind of lost that touring quality and the relationships. And I had been using uh, R&R Cases out of Chicago, phenomenal company for years. And I did all the designs and just kind of handed it over to Mike Crutch. Well, they they were looking for somebody to take care of the touring industry. So as an entertainment industry liaison for them. So basically the touring sales, sound company sales, and then also dealt with all the big accounts like Delta, Hewlett Packard and stuff like that. And then also started running the factory down in um, Salt Lake City or not uh, City of Industry, California. So that was really a cool environment to go from a touring thing to work for, you know, they were owned by um, Halliburton. The, the corporation was. Wow. So, so they had 320 employees working three shifts and here I'm just this touring guy was able to redesign how they manufactured stuff and wow. we converted it, you know, kind of like what Toyota did with just in time manufacturing. So before they'd get a order for 400 or something, they'd cut the wood for 400 of them and the first guy goes, well, this is wrong. And then they'd have to throw all that wood away. So what we did is we do, let's do four pieces, hand it off to your buddy. If it's wrong, he shoves it back to you. So it was a really cool experience to get out of the touring industry, find another thing. So this is something I recommend, guys, is kind of look around you and have those relationships with other manufacturers because that might be the next step. So I worked there for about six and a half years. And then Midas, KT, and Electro Voice moved like eight blocks to my next to, from my house when um, they were bought. The parent company was Telex, and their main office was eight blocks from my house. And that's another time where I spent a good year, year and a half pursuing them, wanting that job. And I just, I FedEx my resume, you know, to them, even though it's eight blocks away, I'm trying to get their attention. And it was after a couple of people were let go, you know, vice president, president said another vice president realized that, Hey, you know what? We keep hiring these guys with master's degrees in marketing and not a single one of them knows about our industry. Let's take a chance and bring somebody in from the industry. And there within the year, I started running uh, Midas and KT for, um, all of the U.S. and then North America. And South so America. that that purple resume paper would have worked again at Midas. It would have actually. Just a little <laughs> different shade. That's pretty yeah. funny. I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know why there's so many Midas consoles in Minneapolis. Yep. <laughs> uh, first Midas console I ever used was at Club 3 Degrees in 2004. Oh, yeah. Legend 3000. In fact, yep. that engineer is over at an AG venue in um, uh, Seattle right now. Ben? Yep. I yep, he love he that just guy. Got, he just got two Quantum 225s. I can look back at like specific moments when I had like light bulbs and you learned something revolutionary about audio. And one of them was with Ben when I learned how to actually use a noise gate because right behind the console, you turn around and all the uh, gear was behind it and it was all KT stuff and there were noise gates. And he goes, oh, by the way, the threshold on these gates are backwards than what you're used to. Little did he know. I didn't know how to use them anyway. <laughs> you weren't used to it. You just never used it. Right. But when he said that and I had to think, oh, they're backwards, that was enough to trigger in me what a threshold was actually doing to a gate. 
That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Anyway. So thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Great guy. Great guy. Shout out to Ben. Ooh. Okay, cool. And then you were there a few years, and then? Yeah, so I was with Midas and KT for about 12 years. And this is the, the period where we had the XL4, the, all the Heritage series and stuff. And Bob Doyle and Webby went off to Soundtracks and started Digico. And so those were family members, you know, of mine. And for years and years, we'd always get together at trade shows and stuff. And finally, one day I'm walking into um, WFX show. I'm on the phone. It's eight in the morning. Webby's actually at the booth, which is usually about 840. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's actually at the booth. I'm on the phone talking to my to my wife, Jennifer. And as I'm walking by, I hear, hey, Matt. My wife's like, who's that? And, and I just... I don't know why I said it. I just said, I think that's my next new boss. And that huh. week at the show, Jack Kelly and Webby kept coming over, watching me doing the demonstrations on the uh, XL8s. And um, he asked if we could have a serious conversation and I never looked back. So started within about a month that's and amazing. a half. And I just, I work with some of the most incredible people, Ryan, Kyle, yeah. uh, Titus, you know, the list goes on. All of our support guys are they're, they're family more so than support guys, you know, um, Paul Bell, uh, uh, Chip and Trevor and Amy and, and Sue, you know, our whole office, everybody that works for us. The problem is with our company is nobody leaves. That's a great thing. Actually, it's a great, I, I think have, we've only yeah. had a couple of shipping people that over time have, have, you know, sometimes that doesn't always work in some of those roles, but for the most part in group one, we're all lifers. Um, because anybody who's ever been to a trade show, like, NAM or Infocom or WFX and has seen Matt Larson's console demo of basically upside down uh, on the screen doing all the functionality. I mean, it's one of the best experiences of the show, but having a chance personally, I mean, Lee and I have both had the opportunity to hang out at dinners with you and the rest of the team that you're talking about. And I'm telling you, you are a hundred percent correct. That sense of family and camaraderie and all in for each other, more than just the company. It's like personally, yeah. just being so tied together is something that I love seeing modeled in what you guys do because it feels like family. Even as an outsider, to be welcomed into that is just, it's always one of my favorite things about any of those shows. So, you know what it, what it gets down to, guys? If I always look at it, comes from the top down, it's the leadership. It's just like a pastor at a church. It's like the, the, technical director it's people wanted to make people happy it's like my parents we wanted them to be proud of us and um jack kelly is the the leader of our family of group unlimited and he's the guy who actually brought midas and kt over in the u.s in the back in the 80s he also brought xta over he's, he then became one of the owners of xta and it really comes down to to jack um and I think this is a is a life lesson. We're actually looking for an LA sales guy right now. That's a pitch there. Hey, go um, for it. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that's critical to us is when we look to identify people is we're looking for honorable men or women, somebody you can trust, somebody you know that's a hard, aggressive worker. The technology, they can learn that over time. So there's, I think, a couple key things that we look for in people. And, and what it does is it allows us in, in any part of life. You have that kind of characters as friends and stuff, you know they'll be friends forever or partners forever. And so that's kind of one thing I think that we've had the success with our company. That's awesome. Do you guys remember at NAM like three years ago 
we were leaving the show floor. I think we're walking out with you, Matt. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you guys want to go to dinner? Like, sure. uh, We'll have to grab an Uber or something. How many of you are there? It's just us three. You go, oh, we've got room. Okay. So we just start walking towards valet at the Hilton and a Suburban pulls up and the windows are all blacked out. And we open the doors, the three of us outside. And it has probably 10 people in it already. Yeah. And we get in the car and go to dinner, 13 people in a Suburban. I sat behind the third row seat between the third row and the tailgate with Kyle and Ryan Shelton. There were three of us crammed between the tailgate and the third row seat. There were probably 13 people in a seven person vehicle. It was unbelievable. Jay, you're next. You're up in the, you're going to be up in the front, Jay, right in the middle of the driver and the passenger. I might be driving that. (laughs) That was an incredible night. We liked that Mexican place so much in the Anaheim packing house. We rented it out the following year for our after party. Oh, wow. Yeah. Downstairs. Yes. Yeah. That place. Awesome. It is awesome. You know, the thing I love about those kind of dinners is it's, you know, especially at a trade show, you work so hard or you have a relationship with customers. And when you go out to dinner and hang out, you know, you could obviously do it with three or four people. Going out with a dozen or 18 people is pretty epic. And it is epic. People remember that. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty awesome. <laughs> What's even better, we have, a, we have this horrible uh, pattern of getting a reservation for six or seven. You know, <laughs> Every, every every time we go out somewhere or we're headed to a city, I'll get reservations for six or seven, maybe eight every yeah. night somewhere. And we show up with 12. Yeah. And they just, <laughs> they figure it out. Yeah. And whose fault is that? It's always Lee mine. Fields. It's always mine. I'm the guy that's like, hey, Jonathan wants to come. Who's Jonathan? Oh, he's my friend from high school. And everybody's like, who is this guy? Dream on. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, how how little number of people can I go to dinner with or eat by myself? Yeah. <laughs> Lee's the I'm opposite. I, me and Matt Larson, we get along great. <laughs> it's always a party. Oh, it's not like you said you had 16 and only eight showed up. So you probably don't piss off the restaurant that way. Right. That's true. <laughs> that's funny. Well, you've given us already some leadership lessons and life lessons. You know, you talk about not necessarily knowing the most, but being the hardest worker. I mean, I think that is just such a key, especially for some of the guys who are listening who are young maybe new to their church teams and just want to sort of figure out how to succeed. I mean, just the work ethic piece is so huge. I know you've instilled that in your boys and they've become, you know, Olympic level swimmers and have just, I mean, they're just, they've succeeded hugely. So just advice like that is awesome. Um, But I do want to shift and talk a little bit about just the industry in general, because we've, you know, we've all experienced anybody who's tried to order a piece of gear in the last few months, especially supply chains are terrible, chip shortages. We've all heard the news. We've all experienced this stuff. So talk for a minute about the state of the industry, how you guys are doing, what, you know, you, you mentioned to me on the phone the other day, you know, when Yamaha announced that they were basically not shipping certain products for quite a while, you said, you know what, that's really disappointing for us because competition is a good thing. Absolutely. You know, as much as you would think that a, a manufacturer like Digico would say, oh, great, here's our opportunity. Your attitude was, you know what? We're going to miss the competition that a Yamaha brings to the table this year. So just talk for a few minutes about some or all of those things and just give our listeners kind of an insight into your perspective on that. Yeah. I remember earlier when I was talking about this industry is a family 
Yeah. You know, we do a lot of shows and we do a lot of shows with our competition and they all have family and stuff. So I'm kind of sad to see, you know, I, I realized that, Hey, you could say Yamaha can't ship for a year. That's great. We can go out there and sell a lot more, but reality, those are all a bunch of guys that actually have families and stuff. Um, there's also yeah. integrators that kind of have their flow and it makes it efficient and stuff. So it's not a good thing for our industry. I can't wait till we get back to the norm, get back to regular trade shows and some consistency. It'd be really good. Um, I think before I get into the, the, uh, the, the product flow, I think the one thing that uh, the COVID also did is it allowed enforced engine, uh, sound company integrator owners to really think about their business and understand, you know what I was getting sometimes skinny margins and stuff, but I got the job where now they're realizing, Hey, you know what, in order for us to survive, we actually have to have some cushion. And there's always been the race to bot the bottom. We always joke that, uh, for a tour, you could still, you could have the tour this year if you use, use the same rate as last year. But the guy's been saying <laughs> that since 1984. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so it, I think there's been, it, with the cost of everything going up, uh, freight is just astronomical. Um, getting trucks, getting airspace is, is tough. So there's, and every day is a new challenge. Um, with us as uh, Audiotonics as a whole, because we're the biggest console manufacturer because of all of our different brands, we probably buy more faders than anybody in the world. It allowed us to kind of understand what we can do to protect ourselves. And we also, um, back last March, we invested a lot, a lot in, because we kind of saw what could be the problems. So we bought thousands and thousands of chips that we knew would get us through the future. And we also made uh, an astronomical amount of redesigns, um, upwards of 52 circuit boards across the company. And that costs wow. a lot of money because you're taking your whole, all your R&D teams and saying, stop on all the new product, go redesign everything you've already designed last year or three years ago to get around those supply chains. Now, just so people understand, that's something that's happened forever. You know, any manufacturer, doesn't matter if you're sure, whatever, there's times where you're using a component that a manufacturer is going to discontinue it and your R&D team go finds alternative components that have the same or better specs, but you still have to redesign that circuit board. Yeah. And that so, could be anything from uh, the screen well, of a console, absolutely. A huge, you know, foundational piece to a small adapter in the back that you'll never see. Yep. And, and the biggest thing is you want to make it seamless as a really good manufacturer. You know, you'll do contracts that they have to build it for so many years, but sometimes things happen, right? Yeah. So with the supply chain thing, I think I'm, I can't believe the amount of flow we get out of the factory still. Um, we, the only real issues we have is say the S21 and 31, and that's just because those are made overseas. So the, that factory is slow. And if, if COVID hits them, they shuts it down for lots of stuff. And then once it's done, it has to then go on a sea container, which used to take us three weeks, could be three weeks, could be 90 days, could be 120 days. You never know until it yeah. just shows up. Wow. Um, regarding Dante, which I, I would say the good in, the industry has actually really adopted and embraced Dante. I think there's 3,000 some products in the yeah. world that use Dante. Um, so with them having the issue, I think that was pretty detrimental to the industry. Somehow Austin Freshwater, who's now our managing director, he's been with us for about four or five years, who's kind of taken over for James because James is now running all the, the companies. Um, Austin has figured out a way to still get flow of Dante. So pretty much every week we're still able to do Dante uh, designs. 
Um, there's a lot of consultants that the, the spec might have to have Dante because of the infrastructure of the project. Um, we're fortunate because we also use Maddie, OptiCore, and Dante. We can intermingle any type of protocols as well as up-and-coming AVB, that type of stuff. So we were able to get around that as well as um, we have some solutions that will probably be out in, in maybe 60 days or so that really makes us feel that we can pretty much confidently do any Dante project in volume. Um, with that said, every day is a different battle. You know, we've had guys where we've had shipments ready to go to the airport to fly. Cause we fly most of the stuff in from the UK where the truck driver called and said, he can't get fuel. <laughs> oh we'll, we'll see you Monday. Oh, uh, we've had times where we bring the, the truck driver who had fuel gets it to the airport and they say, this is great. We can't move it for 12 days. Cause that's the next time there's open freight space because other manufacturers or whatever are willing to pay astronomical amounts for that freight space. And we're already paying astronomical amount. We don't have we don't have Amazon money, um, so it, it's one of those things that it's it's the partnership. I think the the great thing is is customers have accepted it and understand, but they're also asking that question. I think we get surprised that I've had projects where somebody needs something to ship in a week, and we've actually been able to do it because it had a hard hard date and a really important type of thing. But we we're into that six to ten weekish type of when somebody's got a brand new order. But a lot of times those can be pulled up. You know, we've got a lot of stadiums and stuff going in, or especially now the touring season. Yeah. Um, and we just take it, you know, um, my uh, stepdad always said, we never sweat the little things, you know, just deal yeah. with it and move on. So that's kind of what we're doing. I think that's what everybody in the world, all the manufacturers are having to just figure it out and uh, just make do. Well, you guys had to make a huge pivot even at the beginning of the pandemic, because the timing of all of that with you guys releasing a brand new product. Yeah. I mean, the 338 console was like hot off the presses and all of a sudden training, integration, anything in person, trade shows, any opportunity to show people what was new was just a brick wall. So yeah. the way you guys pivoted and did all the online stuff and the way Kyle dug into the training with video and over Zoom. I mean, you guys, you guys really did an incredible job. But talk for a minute about that. Like, how do you release a new product in a global pandemic? Well, <laughs> we just figured out real quickly how to do it. We the touring side installs did really, really well. It was one of the biggest launches, absolutely the biggest launches for Nam. I, you know, the place was packed when we launched it. Oh, I by think, the way, that was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I was standing yes. there beside Scott Ragsdale, and my son was playing <laughs> Fortnite at the time, and I was like, "This is the coolest product <laughs> release video I've ever seen an audio manufacturer do." It reminded me of Fortnite. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it was going to explode, and then um, all of a sudden COVID hit. Um, what we did is we really kind of pulled back, and we did have to learn how, like like you guys, everybody did, we had to figure out how to do Zoom meetings that actually meant something to somebody, not just a powerpoint type of thing, and make it so you could still touch the customers. Um, and that went really good, and I think there was a, a certain point, maybe after six months there was burnout, but I would say we probably stopped traveling for maybe 90 days. And we were always very cautious, but there were sometimes if if it wasn't for the house of worship market or the broadcast markets or the big performing arts centers that were already under construction, they weren't going to stop. That's what really got us through. Um, and it was it was amazing to see that pastors actually found out where the broadcast room was 
No joke, right? <laughs> and they actually yeah, started no caring kidding. about the quality of broadcast because they had to step up their game. So that was really fun to to go through is, you know, find that shiny thing in life, right? Um, so I think what we did is we became, we were always working for, with Digico, we have a just-in-time manufacturing process. You know, let's say we needed 10 of something, there'd be 10 on the shelf. If four left the factory, the components for four came in that day or the next day. Well, when all this happened, we basically took every penny we had pretty much, and we just bought a couple of years worth of, of inventory. So now we're an actual warehouse and we still had our, our second factory, um, cause we had moved into another factory a, a couple of years ago and we were using this one for storage. Well, now this became basically our bank account for, for, uh, metalwork. And, and it's weird. I remember about a month and a half ago, we ran out of black powder coat. Haven't <laughs> ran out of black powder coat since 1973, but all of a sudden we couldn't get black powder coat. So it's, it's always a battle every day. You don't know what you're going to get. Wow. Well, the perception is from the outside that you guys haven't been affected at all. So even hearing all of these small speed bumps and hurdles that you're jumping over is really cool. It's just a reflection on, again, your team, everyone overseas, the the manufacturers. It's really cool. Well, and it's it's also patience of the consultants, the integrators, the end user at the church who's promised the pastor we'd have this by this date. And usually we're, we're, we're pretty good. We're not perfect. Um, but I think because all the other issues makes us look good. Um, but, uh, you just, you can, every, it's kind of like, remember back in the day when a digital council had a failure, it was catastrophic and everybody was yelling. Nowadays it's kind of like, yeah, what'd you do? Reload your session and everything was good or power cycle, or did you have your clock wrong or something? And this is for any manufacturer and as well as, you know what? Sometimes things break. I think finally people kind of understand that the technology is not perfect. You know, how many times have we been to a concert that all of us know that that moving light quit working or those four segments of the big video wall aren't working, but nobody ever complained about that. Right. Well, and anybody who's ever mixed on a Digicode D5 knows that things break. Let's be honest. Shots fired. Shots fired. We're going to edit that out. That was a, no, that was a you long keep time ago. Long, long time ago. Yeah. So Jeff started mixing when he was 18. Yeah. <laughs> if, if only. That's crazy. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the future of audio consoles. So you mentioned broadcast. We're seeing loads of churches now have separate mixers for broadcast, but a lot of them are going the DAW route. Mm-hmm. Which, if you had asked me, actually, not if, when I was asked a year ago, year and a half ago, what I thought about it, I thought it was not wise. Not because of the quality of the mix you can get with one to the other, just because of reliability. But the the reason people were mixing in Pro Tools for the broadcast mixes mainly was to tune the vocal and replace the snare drum. Well, we're all on a personal mission to teach people that you can tune the snare drum and you can change the microphone and get it to sound the way you want. So DWs are getting more stable. There's redundancy things you can do being put in place. I personally feel like DAWs are getting more like consoles and consoles are getting more like DAWs. Like there's this, they're each going that direction with things like plugins and routing and workflows and all that. So what, what do you think about that? Have you guys thought about it? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good conversation to have. 
Um, I'm still trying to figure out if this internet thing is going to work or not. I'm not a big believer yet, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> internet's right. Um, I think the thing to think about is this, and this is kind of a sales pitch on Digico. The entire SD and the quantum series are under the same platform. So when I've got a, a church, front of house, monitor broadcast, that's asking for three people. And a lot of times I almost want to say, and you guys probably know better than me, but I think there's like maybe 5%, 10% of the technical team is on salary. The rest are volunteers. Oh, yeah. And we have, we're probably like on our fifth or sixth generation of councils. So we've made it really simple for the volunteer to get up on a desk, you know, at a festival, never seen a desk being able to get up and do a show with a 30 minute changeover. Um, the one advantage that we have is if you do uh, Digico at front of house monitors as well as broadcast is that you have backup redundancy. Everybody knows the exact same footprint. The technical director who might also mix front of house, you know, what happens is he sets up, whether it's a, a Digico desk or let's say it's another manufacturer's desk or it's a DAW system, he sets it up and he doesn't go back in that room for another nine months until there's an issue. You're right. All of a sudden he's freaked out. He's running down the hall, up the stairs. It's a beautiful air conditioned room with really nice seats. <laughs> and he's trying to, he, he's trying to remember w how the system was set up. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, mm. it's computer-based. Now the other problem we have is, is it's computer-based. So it's a Mac or a PC and the whole heart of that system is designed to what's current and an update could actually trash that. So there's times where you're having to hold back that computer update where with Digica, what we do is we do an industrial design. So our computer system is basically a lockdown get rid of all the junk. We're yeah. not dependent on the current software updates and the platform for, that they're using for people to be able to tie their phones to and stuff. Yeah. So that's where the advantage is. I, I think the one thing that I'm looking for that next generation of how we mix is we keep going back to the touch and feel. People love the fader. They yeah. love that tactile knob thing. Um, I joked around with uh, Dave Ratt from Rat Sound. This is years ago. We were doing some little training thing up in Pennsylvania in the middle of nowhere, Boston or something. And we're at the um, bar after the thing and everybody's just having a little dinner and cocktails. And he's, at the time, he was in love with the Venice because it was simple. He could just reach and touch everything. He's, you guys need to do this with your digital, de digital, digital desk is I need feedback. And I'm like, Dave, let's be honest. What you're looking for is a screen full of sharp nails that come up and poke you to give you the feel. So you'd be mixing, you know, and bleeding, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, 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 there's something about that when you can touch something and have that um, feedback. Um, I absolutely think there's benefits of both worlds, you know, yeah. Um, that it will progress. Uh, you know, a lot of things like the, a lot of the features in the quantum, well, we were only able to achieve those because we have the processing power now of that super FPGA engine. The quantum engine is phenomenal. Kind yeah. of the same thing with the clang, with the immersive sound. That's been something guys have been trying to do for probably, I don't know how long, 30 years. They would love to do it, maybe 20 years. But it wasn't until the technology was there that they could actually implement it with the low, low latency that actually truly works in the real world. Yeah, for sure. And do you think with things like the processor and the quantum, we'll see things like, drum replacement on a live console here's where i would go with that is one we we're trying to be really good of not talking about things till they're actually available or within i like to not talk about anything unless it's ready to ship in three weeks yeah. sounds, sounds like my dating life yeah I, <laughs> 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 all righty um 
So in a perfect world, I would never talk about something unless it was actually shipping in three weeks. We're never, we're never perfect on that, right? Um, but here's what I would say. Things like the subject you brought up, what we're really good is really good at listening to engineers. Yeah. And the most powerful thing you can do is to send me or any of our guys an email of like, you know what would be really cool if you could do this, this, or this. They yeah. always go to the R&D team. They always get on the list, whether it makes it to the system or not. What's interesting about the, our, our process, how we do this is it gets on the list. And that way you've got all these programmers. If one guy sees this, is like, oh, I could only do that, but I, I need this whole backbone. Well, the other guy who's working on the backbone, he knows you're kind of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And while he's redeveloping code for another section, he could go, well, look at, I could do this for this one feature, but if I also do this, this, and this to it, we at least have that infrastructure. So on the next release, we could add that really cool feature. Yeah. And that really, like all the quantum features and stuff are things that we've gotten from, you know, our, our own guys, but also touring guys. Like, could you do this? And it's, it's dream of things, you know, it's yeah. our, our theater software is phenomenal. Well, that was years and years working with sound designers. Um, it's the the market segments from trade shows of somebody with the volunteer versus the pro guy. Everybody's got their ideas or, hey, I do this on this analog desk. Remember how we used to say that? Um, yeah. And now now it might be, I might be using this feature in this desk. And we try to have a balance. Sometimes you add too many features. It gets really complicated. So we try to have what's really a good feature. And there, there's on occasion, there's a feature that's like, oh, that's cool, but you're probably the only one in the world that would ever use it. So that might just stay on the list, and, but not for a while. So Yeah. So for people who are familiar with the Digico platform, and maybe they're familiar with Quantum, um, is there anything that is coming that you can share? I know that there's been, for example, when Spice Rack first came out, there was a limited number of you know, flavors of things that you could do. You yeah. had a multiband compressor, and other things were sort of, coming soon. Yeah. So is there anything that maybe not three weeks, but anything you can divulge that our guys who use that stuff would be interested in? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting thing. And let me, let me tell a little bit of a story here since we we're all just hanging out. One thing Digico did that I, it turned out brilliant was the fact we had the, 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 um, super FPGA chips, right? So instead of using your regular standard DSP processing back in the day is if you had a DSP chip, that chip was only eight channels. It will only ever be eight channels. It can only do these features, right? With the super FPGA chip, it allows us a couple things. One, when we first started, nobody knew how to write code for it. So our guys had to spend about three and a half years figuring out how to write the code for this chip. We couldn't pull kids out of college that knew this. So we had that early learning curve. So we kind of became the pioneer in this technology. In addition, we could release something. And when we release something, we're, we're, we kind of look at the market as a product manager. We kind of find the holes for different products against competitors and we release that product. Well, because this engine is so powerful, over a little bit of time, we can just go look and maybe a, a competitor built something out. We can just go in and crank up our engine, add more ins, more outs, more additional features. Now, what we also did is when the Quantum came out, the Quantum 7, so there's tons of SD7s and SD5s out in the world. We could have absolutely came out with a whole brand new product line that would make the SD7 and SD5 obsolete. So the guys that have upwards of millions of dollars invested in the product have to now sell that off for whatever they can get and then have to go buy the new shiny thing. And it wasn't until we really, after we process this and actually uh, release the upgrade kit, where we basically pull out the old engine, put the new engine in, they fell in love with us. 
because it's not only the sound company, it's the pastor at the church saying, wait a minute. So this piece we bought seven years ago that we need, we're kind of at the point where we need more ins, more outs. We could just simply pull the old engines, put the new one in at a pretty decent price and be able to have basically a 2022 model. So that really, um, I think what it did is it made everybody's eyes open up of how flexible the whole platform is and kind of future proofing. Uh, for whatever your needs are, especially having like the the DMI cards, the digital multi-channel interface cards, as we can do everything: analog, AES, Dante, uh, automatic microphone mixer. Think of a Dante, right? Um, or a Dugan, I mean, uh, Dante cards, optics. As new protocols come out, we just make a new card and we slap it in that hole. So, I think that's kind of a, a thing that's helped Digico um, as people yeah. kind of understood the whole eco. The, the flow. Um, I want to bring up a story. This is a really great story um, from Donnie at Audio Ethics. Can I yeah, shout out to Donnie? So Donnie had this, we were just chatting and he said, you know, it was, it was a, a pastor. Who was, they were looking to replace the, the PA and the councils. And the issue is, is some of these things can cost some, some money, right? And um, Donnie's explaining to him that their, their desk is pretty old and it's like 10 years old or so. And it's kind of hit, hit its life end. And the pastor's like, oh, I don't know, Donnie. And, and Donnie says, hey, pastor, can I see your phone? Pastor reaches in his pocket, pulls out the new iPhone 12, all smiley and all happy. And Donnie says, that's, that's a great phone. How come you don't just use the iPhone 6? <laughs> right. Why do you have to have the new model? One of my favorite stories, because what it did is it basically um, got him to, to understand something that the pastor could understand. So that was kind of, he could relate that to that's why the front of house guy is trying to replace this, this 10 year old technology desk, whether whoever manufacturer is, that's why we're looking at replacing the speakers or the video wall or something. So yeah, I, I love that story because it's something that other people can relate to because we love the gear. We understand what's different of an old to a new. So good. Yeah, for sure. You know, one thing I think we should also talk about is the, the people that use the desk. People that are doing video, people that are in the technology that love the whatever they're touring, whether they're at a church or whatever. I think the one thing I always like to talk about is um, figure stuff out on your own. Watching those YouTube videos, uh, like when we do trainings, I always say to guys, the only way you're going to be successful, and this is with our product or anybody's product, is for you to come in all by yourself with a microphone, a pair of headphones, and play with a system, yep. and just touch every knob on your own because. We do a presentation, we teach them everything, but you don't get that muscle memory until you do it yourself and you'll build up your session for your, for your main service. And people are scared to make any drastic changes. So we always say, okay, save that session. Now let's make a brand new blank session where everything's flat, nothing's connected to anything so that you really understand the flow. And I would say this is with any technology, whether you're video graphics editor or whatever, it's, it's really getting down to the bare basics of any system and then I always, um, I think we've talked about this in the past in our earlier podcasts is I love to break things. Yeah. You know, you got a spare power supply, turn off the backup or turn off the primary, see what happens to your PA. So if you've practiced that with your staff, so everybody really understands if, if this happens, what are we going to do back in the eighties? We always would run, you know, and you should be doing this today is we would always run feeds from front of house to monitors back and forth. So the front of house guy always yep. did a left or right additional analog feed that you could run the cables and he'd be just sitting there next to the uh, crossover or the side fills if you're using side fills or even just a couple wedges. 
in case the monitor desk went out, we could still do our event, our service or whatever it is. And then vice versa, if we lost our front of house, the monitor guy could take, could technically could just take his, his left to right side fill mix if he did a full band mixer or build up another stereo mix. So it's, it's have that redundancy. If we plan for redundancy, we never need it. That's very true. I always did that at the church on the DSP. There was two spare inputs on the PA DSP and we sent, um, it was either a musician's mix that didn't have click and talkbacks in it that would hit mm-hmm. it if it was full or it had its own mix in it that could go straight to the PA. And we tested it with virtual sound check, made sure it wasn't like super bright. I mean, we never, ever had to use it in 12 years, but it was there. Yeah. yeah. Hey, let me throw, good. can I throw out one more thing? Yeah. Sure. So here's another thing I think is really important. Let's say, especially for, for a front of house guy, whether I'm at church or front of house um, for a theater is, is, be open. You know, when that little kid walks by you, turn around, smile, you know, ask him if he wants to come in and check it out. Whether it's a boy or a girl, doesn't matter. Sometimes you can have such an amazing impact at somebody when they're so young that all of a sudden they might help you clean up some cables or push chairs or something, or maybe they just want to sit behind you and watch you every Sunday service. Um, I also say to guys like at, at theaters, money sometimes is a concern, right? For symphonies, performing arts centers, whatever. If when the customers, the people that have bought the ticket are coming into your local theater, you know, treat them like a red carpet was just rolled out because you having that relationship, you might be at a point where I need to replace my PA. Well, they might be the donor. Right. You might bring them into the booth, show them what you do, you know, with a positive thing. Of, we've had this piece. We've got a lot of good times out of it. We're really trying to work on our budget to, to probably replace it. Um, I did a training in the middle of the woods up in, um, up by Green Bay, uh, Door County. And I drove and drove and drove, got to the, um, us for the forest, um, where you'd have to have your park pass to get in. Yeah. I'm just telling, going where they told me to go. I get there. I'm in the middle of the woods. There's wooden benches made out of trees, a little hut out at front of house was that front of house position in a flat wooden stage with some steel pipes with, with Lico's. They do Broadway type shows, like shows that become on Broadway. They, what they have is a lot of equity actors and writers and directors from New York. They go to um, this, this, this place and they actually try their new plays out through the summer. And people that wow. are out there with their family with cabins are there. And the front of house guy was talking to his wife's girlfriend and just was saying, you know, yeah, we're kind of really struggling with our stuff. She says, well, what do you need? It's like, well, <laughs> what do you mean? Well, just tell me what you need to do a show properly. And he said, well, it'd be spectacular if we could get an SD9 theater version. And she says, done. And she wrote the check. <laughs> That's incredible. So it's those little things of relationships. And it's not about you just getting just the money. Know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 you can't get shot for asking unless he's got a gun. This That's true. <laughs> okay, this just reminded me. Let's wrap on this. because All right. I, I don't know any details about this. I heard about this venue and I have a hunch. Let's just test this out. You're going to know about it. There's a venue somewhere in Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, maybe thousands of seats that's only used once a year for like medical insurance or something. Oh, no, this is uh, it's called Epic. It's a medical insurance software company. Okay. It's one of the most beautiful places you've ever been at. And, um, they've got, 
It's pretty interesting. Um, it's a woman, I forgot her name. Uh, she owns it herself. She's in her upper age, but she's wrote this software years and years ago. It is the backbone. I want to say for probably 70% of the medical industry. Okay. And so if you think about all the hospitals that have to do all their billing and stuff, yeah. they, the campus, you, it's in, it's, um, out, outskirts of Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. One of the most beautiful places you actually go to the campus and the sign, the Epic sign is actually on a lift because there's cornfields. So as the corn grows, the sign gets lifted up. No way. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the, the offices are gorgeous. You know, it's kind of got this um, northern feel like pine trees and stuff. Like when you go inside, it's like there are cabin fields, like birch, wood, actual trees and stuff. They have the most escalators of any interior, actually most escalators anywhere in the world. Because what they did is they built this... Um, the one of the campuses, they have this auditorium. They're only like actually a thousand seats at the most. Okay. So they built this one auditorium and she came in. This is the story. I don't want to, but I'm pretty sure this is the exact details. Um, she came in after they did this big um, addition of this new place and she sat down and there was a beam out in the audience. There's like several beams. And she sat down and she told the contractors, this has to go, this has to go, this has to go, and this has to go. And he's like, oh, ma'am, that, that, that holds up the entire roof. And she says, I understand. But everybody who sits here is worth $2 million for the purchase of the software. And then every year that they come back for the training is another million dollars ongoing. So they got rid of the beam. They actually cantilevered a structure over the roof to get rid of the beams. And then, then they built this, uh, the, new, the new one. It was, I want to, you know, the uh, Dallas Cowboy Stadium? Yeah. I think that was like $1 billion. Yeah, it was a billion. This, it, it's like, I think a thousand, a couple thousand seat venue. It's like $1.2 billion for PowerPoint. <laughs> and what it is, is wow. it's, it's basically, they dug down into the ground. Uh, the engineer, a great, great engineer who uh, worked for, with um, uh, Claire, but also um, Shoko guy. And uh, he wanted a SD7 at front of house. It's the biggest installation of the Sure uh, system. Just tons and tons and tons and tons of wireless because they have to have microphones all over the audience, basically for a PowerPoint. The video wall is unbelievable. And he wanted to get an extender. And then he said, you know what? I think I need, you know, the Seven's already got spare engines, right? I think I need to get uh, another spare engine. And I'm like, well, with the Seven and an extender, another spare engine, you're pretty close to just getting two sd7s yeah yeah okay okay at front so, of house that's what he did house. yeah for powerpoint yeah and it's not a negative against him it's not an overspending it's they cannot afford to be down when you have all these medical professionals right. it's it's the board it's these surgeons around the world they're coming here it's a critical critical meeting it's billions of dollars oh yeah it's, it's crazy so it's yeah. one of the most unbelievable um, technology in installs I've ever seen. It was done by uh, Claire Brothers, and wow, it's it's stunning. And it's it, every part of the building. The you don't even see the garages. All the parking is hidden. You just see a little entrance for the thing, and all the parking goes down underground. So everything is beautiful. It's all grass and trees, and yeah, and corn. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I wonder if they do a tour one day. We could do like a backstage video of the place. We can ask. We could. Yeah, know? maybe. Yeah. We'll get shot for asking. Unless yeah, they got a gun. 
she unless is. she's got a gun. <laughs> so that's the one thing you guys learned. I'm so proud of you. That's awesome. <laughs> well, Matt, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today. I know that everybody listening is going to love these stories and love the advice and just hearing about your products and everything. It's just, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you as well.